I am not a student of human nature. I am a professor of a far wider academy, of which the Doctor Who podcast is merely a part. It's the DWP's great pleasure to bring you Mr. Patrick Troughton, the second Doctor. Yes, we're going to be doing a wonderful retrospective of his work, both before Doctor Who, during Doctor Who, and after Doctor Who. And uh, we're going to be having a bit of a chat about um, the whole mythos, the whole amazingness that is the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who Podcast. Welcome to the caravan and welcome to Tom. Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm fantastic. Lovely to hear your voice again. It's, it seems like it's been so long. I, I say that all the time, but really this time it has. It, it, it has been a while. I mean, last week we were out in a train shed in Derby having great fun with Deborah Watling, Katie Manning and Sophie Aldred and all those other lovely people. Um, and yeah, so yeah, you're right. I, I was talking to James. It did, it did feel a bit weird to be talking to him in the flesh without you in my other ear. But there we go. <laughs> what we are here to talk about today is Patrick Troughton, the man who continued in the boots of the great William Hartnell and continued on the show we all know and love, Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be delving into his time on the show. And uh, I know for Tom, it's going to be particularly exciting because, uh, well... He's your fave, isn't he? Well, yes, you're right. He's easily my favourite Doctor. He's the first new Doctor. Um, and I think a lot of people would agree, never before has such a small man cast, cast such a long shadow. He's brilliant. Well, I'm dying to get into talking about him, so let's uh, take a very, very short musical break and get back and start talking about the man. Picture the scene, it's circa 1986 and John Nathan Turner, the current producer of Doctor Who at the time, is looking for a new Doctor to replace Colin Baker um, after he has been, I suppose, unceremoniously dumped by the BBC as the sixth Doctor. Now, legend has it that J&T talked with uh, former producer Sidney Newman and he asked for advice about who he should be casting as his seventh Doctor. Now, Sydney at the time said, well, you should cast Patrick Troughton. And if you can't get Patrick Troughton, get someone who looks like him. Really, that, that sort of um, ties in nicely to when we go back to the, the late 60s, where Patrick Troughton was coming towards the end of his third year as the second Doctor. He was thinking of leaving the role. Now, his, his health wasn't that crash hot at the time. Uh, his wife said, you know, you, you need to get out. It, it's not doing you any good, Patrick. And he was also very great fear of being typecast. He, he didn't want to be known as the man who played the second Doctor for the rest of his career. Um, certainly some people who've played the role have, have suffered from typecasting, but um, some have been able to shrug it off. So he, he was really keen to get out of the role after three years and, and perhaps move on. So how does a man like Patrick Troughton, who I think is so closely identified 
with some of the great successes of Doctor Who get to this point. I mean, we really have to go back to the beginning and look at Patrick Troughton, the man, before he took on the role of the second Doctor and um, what brought him to us in Doctor Who. Tom, would, would you like to set the ball rolling? Patrick Trapp was born in 1920, and he was born in London, spent a lot of his time in London. Uh, and before actually getting to grips with the, uh, the role of the Doctor, he was actually part of the British Navy. Um, and uh, what, what, one of the wonderful things about Patrick was he, 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 he actually rose to the rank of commander. Uh, was in charge of a gunboat patrolling the North Sea, which is uh, indeed quite quite astonishing. And look, and just just looking at this, these little biography notes here, apparently he used to wear uh, a tea cosy on his head um, in cold weather, which is a particularly endearing image. You got the second the second Doctor on a gunboat in a tea cosy patrolling the North Sea. That's quite lovely. One of the great stories I've heard as well of him, um, he, he was responsible on on his particular gunboat for rat duty, <laughs> which involved getting out there with a shotgun. And basically shooting the rats that were on board, and it, it wasn't a particularly interesting role for him. He, he loathed the uh, responsibility, and and he ended up having a great loathing of rats in general. You can imagine Patrick out there, tea cosy on his head, staring beautifully out into the North Sea, gun in hand, shooting rats. <laughs> Such an evocative image. Obviously, once the war finished, um, he got a little, a little bit more into acting. Um, and I think I don't know, I don't know if many people know this, but Patrick Troughton was the first man to play uh, Robin Hood on television. Um, he did some he did he did some theatre work, but he was the first person to actually play Robin Hood on TV. Uh, and it's quite interesting to think that uh, while it, I think his grandson um, also had a part in uh, Robin Hood about four or five years ago. So you know, there's something nice and circular there. You know, as much as there are acting dynasties, I think the, the Troughtons are very much a television dynasty because you know they they, they do have you know there's, there's David there's David Trout who's, who's a quite wonderful actor and then of course there's Patrick himself so yeah yeah um, he was certainly active before the role of the Doctor came to him um, and legend has it that uh, when Innis Lloyd and uh, William Hartnell decided that it was time for uh, Mr Hartnell to part company with the show that Hartnell actually said reportedly that the only person in England who was good enough to take on the role was indeed Patrick Troughton. When, when they were looking for someone to replace William Hartnell who was about to leave the series, uh, I mean it's a well-known fact that William wasn't particularly well that he he was finding the rigours of coping with the very demanding TV recording schedule just just too much. Decision was made that uh, you know they they should have someone else in the role. It's interesting. I mean, we we take the whole concept of regeneration and rejuvenation, I suppose, for granted these days, really. But think back to when William Hartnell was going to leave the role in 1966 and realised that there was no such thing as regeneration. They they'd never had it. They they had this alien who wandered around in a police box, and they had the very real dilemma of well. What are we going to do? Are we going to get someone in that looks like William Hartnell and just pretend that it's the same guy? Um, legend has it that uh, current scriptwriter at the time, Jerry Davis, came up with the idea and said, well, if he's an alien, then, well, let's just have him rejuvenate into a different body. And that was then carried on by Ennis Lloyd that says, well, maybe we, it, it can become a regular thing if we need to replace the actor. Then all we have to do is get him to rejuvenate into a brand new body and there the whole concept of Doctor Who one one of the very foundations of it is 
laid in place merely as a way to get William Hartnell off screen and Patrick Troughton on screen. This is the beginning or the outline of why Patrick Troughton is so important. The show lived and died by the lead actor's ability to hold, to retain, hold and grow the audience. If Patrick Troughton hadn't have been able to do that, then we wouldn't be sat here 47 years later talking about this wonderful television programme because literally he was able to take what Hartnell had done, stand on its shoulders and run with it. But he was able to actually to, to, to take on what Doctor Who had been for the last three years, mould it into something new and different. All bets are off. We can change the lead actor of a show and have it continue. Fantastic. Let's go. Perfect. It's really interesting reading some of the background information these days. When, when you think of the way when a new Doctor came in that they try and choose or, or mould the persona and mould the personality that that actor's going to have. And it's interesting reading some of the uh, early documents that do survive in the uh, BBC archives and just see some of the possible missteps Doctor Who might have taken at, at this very crucial juncture that we mightn't have ended up with Doctor Who on our screens 40 years later. That at one point they were going to have Troughton be a sort of pirate figure or he, he was going to play a, like a tough, salty sea captain. I mean, there was even the horrendous idea at the point to have him uh, black-faced up, like a you know, you know, sort of black-and-white minstrel type of thing, <laughs> and have him do that sort of theatrical role. I mean, can you imagine Doctor Who still being on screen today if <laughs> Patrick Troughton was doing blackface. I, I really, really can't. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not sure that would have gone down terribly well. And we really have to turn to Sidney Newman again because it, it was uh, Sydney that came up with the idea that the Doctor could be what is now known as the Cosmic Hobo, mm. sort of a pastiche of Charlie Chaplin, you know, sort of silent film type feel. Mm where there, there was a lot of physicality in the role, which is something that you never really got with Hartnell because he was an older gentleman. I think you're right. I mean, the other thing to bear in mind, of course, is, is when this is happening. But in a televisual sense, what we've got is television beginning to take its first faltering steps away from televised theatre and into television in its own right as a medium. And so what you needed for that was a new brand of actors. Patrick Troughton quite famously didn't, although he did theatre roles, used to regard it as sh- all that shouting in the evening. Um, if anyone's not come across the Barry Letts uh, biography I, I heartily recommend you read it because you've got a producer's eye um, and a producer's take and a very sensitive man's take on what was going on um, through the Troughton years, through the Pertwee years and the early Baker years as well. But as I say, Patrick Troughton was arguably one of a new breed of actors who was used to the idea of television and preferred it to theatre. It's interesting that a lot of people get very upset when you say, oh, Tom Baker's my favourite Doctor or Peter Davison's my favourite Doctor, when a lot of people think, well, William Hartnell should be your favourite Doctor because he's the one that started the role, he's the one that cemented it all. But I think we really owe a lot and we owe a debt of gratitude, I think, to Patrick Troughton who took a series that could have floundered and never been seen again, made the role his own, made the character his own and continued on for the next three years. Look at the list of firsts that are, that, that are associated with Troughton facing the titles for the first time. The introduction of Unit, um, the, the, uh, the establishment of the three-year rule or the Troughton rule, but that continues even into the new series. When you look at Matt Smith, who is the, what's the name that came up most often after, you know, it wasn't Tom Baker, it wasn't John Perp, it was Patrick Troughton. The Sonic Screwdriver, did I already mention the Sonic Screwdriver? No, you didn't, and you forgot Jelly Babies as well. That oh, was Troughton first. Of course, Jelly Babies, you, does, this guy not, just, does this guy just not stop giving? It's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic.
we should dive right in and start talking about these stories. Now, the, the only thing I think we should discuss is, shall we start with the Tenth Planet, or shall we start with the Power of the Dalek? Power of the Dalek Sea is a fascinating story, not only because it doesn't exist anymore, and you can only hear it mm. and, and see interesting tele-snaps, but you may have picked up that I've been very careful not using the big R word, regeneration, because that word just didn't exist in Doctor Who back in 1966. No, no, you're right. Um, it was very much a rejuvenation. And certainly for many, many years, there's there's been lots of quite interesting fan argument about whether the second Doctor is the second Doctor or whether he's the first, because he it's just an actor or it's just a character making himself younger rather than changing his body into someone else. It's interesting, too, in Power of the Daleks, uh, the, the second Doctor makes the comment that kind of alludes to the fact that regeneration isn't an innate quality of his species, that it's actually the TARDIS that is the one that um, makes him regenerate because he, he he makes a comment there about you know something to the effect of um, without the TARDIS I wouldn't have been able to change or something like that. Yeah, yeah it's, part, and, it's part of me. It's part of the TARDIS. I couldn't without you know. I, yes, yeah. yes. And when he sees his face in the mirror in that wonderful shot that you see so many stills of of Troughton looking into a mirror and seeing William Hartnell looking back at him, he seems genuinely surprised that he's actually changed his face. Yes, you're right. It's not about regeneration at this point. It's about reju. It's about rejuvenation, and even inside that, there's another first: the introduction of the post-regeneration trauma. Because this doctor spends a good amount of time referring to himself in the third person. When Ben starts talking about the doctor and talking to him, the doctor is talking about the doctor, as opposed to which is extremely unnerving. Um, if you know, if, if chaps, if you get a chance to listen to the audio for this. It's a very he's a very very alien character more 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 so than Tom Baker was to begin with to be honest with you because he's not even admitting that he's the Doctor. If we jump forward about thirty years and think about Time and the Rani, there's a moment where the Doctor's not sure sure who he is. But for this, it seems to go on for a good for uh, for, for a good six episodes. But and, and even at the very end, it's not it's kind of left hanging like is this the Doctor? I mean, Polly is in, in immediately convinced that it is. Um, ben really as just doesn't does not appear to like him at all and the, the doctor for his own part just spends an awful lot of the story just sitting about in the back uh, in a corner playing that recorder and annoying everybody so one of the beautiful things about this regeneration and it's the only regeneration that can this possibly occur in because it's mm. the first one that not only are the companions unsure about what's going on but the audience yes. is too yes. every regeneration after that you know second to third third to fourth fourth to fifth on and on and on we know this is what the Doctor does. We know this is what a Time Lord does. Um, so there's no, or oh, is this a Doctor, isn't it type of thing. We know it is. We're just waiting for the companions to catch up. It's a fantastic thing with the first to second that the audience is just as bamboozled as the companions on screen are. Well, you're right. I, mean, I think it's also testimony to, well, two very important things. Number one, um, the capacity of an audience to suspend its disbelief, which I think is the most polite way of saying that, um, and the inventiveness of the people generating the show. It's really difficult for us to sit here and wax lyrical about a lot of these Troughton stories because so much of the Troughton era is missing. I mean, if you jump on any Doctor Who reference site and look for articles on missing episodes, you you, you will see the Troughton era is the one that suffers the most. Uh, I, I think from memory there are only six, possibly seven complete mm. stories 
in the entire Troughton era. All the rest either have one, two, three, four, five, or all yeah. missing. Unfortunately, the Dominators exist in full. <laughs> Cynic. But we only have one episode of Evil of the Daleks. I mean, I, I don't understand why God does that to us. But anyway, that's that's a that's a theological <laughs> argument for another day. What I would heartily recommend is getting hold of the Lost in Time boxed set because there are a couple of episodes of the Moon Base on there. Um, there's a couple, there's, and there are the the sporadic. Uh, remaining episodes from Patrick Troughton. But again, we're into firsts. When it was time to put together animated episodes, which era was, it, was, was used? The Troughton era. Uh, when, it was t- when it was time to try this new technology on a story, it was the Invasion episodes one and four that got this, quite, which I watched last night, actually. It's, well, you know, what, a, what a great treatment. But um, I know in England, certainly in the United Kingdom, there's quite a strong tradition of audio drama anyway. And you think of big things like Big Finish. And... To experience season four or any of the uh, Troughton episodes as audio isn't that much of a hard... Well, it's, okay, it's a hardship that things don't exist um, for the actors and for us in a visual medium. But I've got to be honest, my feeling is that some of the pictures on the audio drama are better than the ones that we'll eventually see if and what, if and when these episodes mm. do come to light. Um, because it, it, it was great listening to um, Evil of the Daleks as uh, as an audio. And then seeing it was slightly less good. I don't, I, I don't want to put a down on it because obviously to have these stories returned to the archive would be absolutely phenomenal. But as I say, the most powerful thing in Doctor the most powerful force in Doctor Who is imagination. I think, my snap example with yours would would be back in the mid eighties. Uh, we we purchased a copy off a local dealer of the audio for Tomb of the Cybermen. Back when we listened to it, it was the only way you could experience it apart from reading the book. And the audio is one of the most atmospheric, beautifully constructed stories you've ever heard. I mean, the the soundtrack is fantastic. The 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 performances are really good. But then 1991 appeared and this story that had been held up as the holy grail of Doctor Who, that it was going to, you know, if you ever saw this or found it, it, it would cure cancer, you know. It, <laughs> it, but then you saw it and, you know, the visuals didn't really live up to what you had built up in your head for the past 15 years. Mm. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. Let's, let's go for a drive. Let's get in through these stories and start talking about what's going on in them. Uh, so we ha- I think we've talked about the power of the Daleks. And it's important- we did mention that a little bit, yes. Uh, just, just a little bit. It's, in- it's interesting. I mean, again, testament to the fact that people were not quite sure what was going to happen. It's like, well, fine, we better get the Daleks back in because that, at least we know that they're a hit. If the actor somehow falters in the role, which of course he didn't, then at least we can fall back on it and go, like, well, we've, we've got the Daleks. The Dalek, you know, you like the Daleks. They're great, mm. aren't they? Um, but he absolutely, stro- he, he absolutely strode through it. I mean, again, it's uh, uh, The Power of the Daleks at its base is a story about warring, uh, about, about warring factions, civil war. Um, I suppose the closer you look at it, the, the questions that, that, are, that, are, that arise are, well, why is there only one, does there only appear to be one woman in the, in the entire story uh, outside, <laughs> outside Polly? Uh, um, but it's, it's, a good, it's a good solid story. Um, there are a couple of Billy Fluffs even uh, from the lead actor. Uh, but no, it's a, it's a good solid story. And at the end of it, we're left with a picture of well, of a mysterious time-travelling alien and his two incredibly attractive companions, Ben and Polly. Um, but then we start to, to, we start to lay the foundation stones of the Troughton era because we touch down in the Highlanders. 
Yes, the Highland is the introduction of, I suppose, arguably the most important second Doctor companion and the one that spent every adventure bar one with him, Jamie McCrimmon. Snatched from the uh, aftermath of the uh, Battle of Culloden, because, of course, on a BBC budget, you can't really show the actual Battle of Culloden because, uh, well, it'd be just a bit too expensive. So uh, the, the Highlanders takes place... Um, after the battle has concluded. You're right, the TARDIS arrives just after the battle. And it's interesting because you've got arguably the beginning of a revolving door of potential companions rolling past uh, the second Doctor. Um, but b- before, we get it, before we get into that, though, it's a great plot because, yes, although the setting is after the Battle of Culloden, you've got uh, a quite an interesting plot about slaving, i.e. What, what the Doctor is really contending with is the idea that prisoners of war... A bit from the uh, from from these Highland battles are being shipped off to be slaves, um, and so the story becomes uh, a bit of a chase around after Bonnie Prince Charlie, um, but also trying to rescue uh, his friends and companions from being shipped off to become slaves, which is which is great. It gives uh, Trout the opportunity to dress up a little bit, which could be a bit confusing for the audience because six weeks before you have a whole new actor playing the Doctor, and then the, and then for the length of this story you have the Doctor dressing up as different people. So it's it's funny because you can you can also feel. Patrick Troughton finding his feet. Polly gets to be quite uh, quite a spunky character. Ben is he's there. He's definitely there, and you know he's, he's a helpful foil. Um, but I also get the feeling that. Uh, Jamie and um, Fraser Hines wasn't really intending uh, intended to stay on uh, p- past this story because he, he's kind of eclipsed a little bit by the character of Kirsty. One thing I will say about all this before uh, before we get too far into this is as I think as as is well known, an awful lot of Patrick Troughton's work and appearances in the show don't actually exist in video format, which is a great shame. Um, but all of these stories are available to be experienced via audio. And uh, if if, pe- if, uh, if listeners haven't tried Big Finish before or aren't used to audio plays, I really recommend getting hold of some of these on audio and having a listen because uh, my favourite phrase at the moment is the, the greatest enemy of Doctor Who is a lack of imagination. So as soon as you start plugging into the audio versions of these stories, then the costumes are bigger, the sets are bigger, um, the performances are brilliant, but you've got the whole landscape of your imagination for this stuff to play out against so i'd recommend definitely getting hold of the audios and definitely having a listen but sorry i have rambled too much definitely listen to the audios don't don't ever not say listen to the audios because like like i said they're the only way that we can experience a, a lot of these trout and stories because uh, his era is certainly one that's been most decimated by the uh, uh, BBC archive culling. It's certainly a, a story for uh, last and certainly dubious firsts. Mm, mm. Um, it's probably the last historical story for for many a year. Probably not till we get to the Fifth Doctor story, Black Orchid. I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which comes closest to being anything like a, an historical story in Doctor Who. And it's like I said, a dubious first. Uh, the Doctor starts dressing up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's something we see a little bit throughout the Trouton era, and uh, certainly continued on to even more excess during the uh, Pertwee era in the seven. Oh, definitely. One of a couple of other things to notice as well is that the character of the Doctor is is still searching around for his little for for his props. Although we've had the recorder, uh, we've also got the introduction of the chest that contains everything, um, and also the magnifying glass. Now, the magnifying glass isn't widely known because it only really seems to show up so much in this first season, so season four, nineteen sixty six. But it's definitely there, and we'll be meeting it again as we go through. Also. Like in the, um, we begin to see the idea of the Doctor carrying all sorts of strange things in his pockets. A conker, a, mog- a magnifying glass, all sorts of strange, unusual stuff. The, the next story in this season uh, is 
The Underwater Menace. Which arguably features one of the most infamous lines in the history of Doctor Who. Do you know the one I mean? Nothing in the world can stop me now. Ah, yes, indeed. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Now, this is a bit of a curious little story because it's uh, one of the... It's the first of the three histories of Atlantis um, that Doctor Who tackles. And when it comes down to it, it's really a story about the king of Atlantis wanting the, wanting the kingdom raised, but also one about starting a bit of an industrial dispute with the fish people <laughs> who gather the food. Um, I, think, I think, Trevor, you mentioned before that um, Patrick Troughton gets to dress up a little bit in this. It's, un- it's unfortunate that some of the surviving episodes of the Troughton era aren't the most stellar examples of that particular story. And The Underwater Menace is, is a perfect example. Troughton does a bit of dressing up. There, there's a lot of fish people dancing and, of course, we have the infamous line at the end of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> so. Exactly so. I mean, there's also quite uh, quite a camp performance from the high priest as well. Um, the the society is built around a god called Amdo, a female god called Amdo. And at one point, he does flounce onto the stage and say, May the wrath of Amdo engulf you all! Which is uh, quite a fun thing to have to listen to. And, I, and, it, and every time I hear it on audio, because I do listen to this one on a semi-regular basis, it does make me laugh out loud, as they say. Well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll move on p- past what is arguably a filler track in the album of the season. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we really come to a story that is one of the first from the Troughton era that um, we say many things about the Troughton era, but there are three words in the Troughton era that you will hear quite often oh, yes. when describing any story or pretty much any story from the Troughton era. Base under, under siege. siege. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, it's certainly not a pioneering thing from the Troughton era because we certainly saw Base Under Siege in the uh, William Hartnell story, 10th Planet. Mm. But it's the Troughton era which is known as the one, well, let's put some uh, people in a base or, or, or in a snowy cap fortress, have the Doctor and his companions arrive and have some aliens try and break in and steal some technology. That's pretty much a staple of, of series four and five. Agreed, agreed. And a pl- plus, of course, we've got the first of this being the first Doctor Who story set on the moon. Um, and we have the re-emergence of my favourite my, my favorite monsters and very definitely a Troughton monster, the Cybermen. Um, oh, yes. It's an, it's an interesting setup as well, because what we've got is we've got... Uh, Members of the League of Nations, it seems, on the uh, working on the gravity station on the moon. But the the individual nations are quite stereotypical. For instance, the Frenchman does appear to be wearing uh, a little scarf and talking a very French accent. And, you, and <laughs> but, but for the fact that there are some pictures, you could easily imagine a string of onions being around his neck. But oh yes. But leave us not forget when this is recorded, it's 1966, and so the idea of um, Europeans working together in a very much like a Star Trek, in a very Star Trek-y way, i.e. Lots of, lots of different individual nations working together on a single project. Although, it, to us now, it's, 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 well, that's what you do. You take, you, take the best from, you take the best from wherever they are. In the 60s, on TV, that representation was, kind, was still kind of new, which is why I think Star Trek got such a, such a great press. But as much as we're seeing um, the development of the Doctor through these stories, it's also interesting to look at the development of, of the character of Polly, because ultimately it's her that comes up with a solution for how to defeat the Cybermen here. What you've got is what she realises is that Cybermen, or she comes to the idea that the Cybermen's breastplates, uh, respiratory units, are made of plastic, in which case, why not just use acetone like nail varnish remover to melt them? Brilliant idea, incredibly simple, but coming from the mouth of a companion, um, which it would have been lovely to see that followed up, followed up a little bit more, because look at her, she was beautiful, 
she had some good lines. She could definitely she could definitely deliver the lines as well, and was away from the series a bit of a sixties icon. So it would have been nice to see to have, to have continued to have seen the development of uh, the stronger female character. But alas, that was not to be. Inside that, though, we also have the development of Patrick Troughton as the Doctor, and we get the first mention of the Doctor's Doctorate too. Um, he starts to say that he's, although he's always defended the idea that it's not, he didn't have a medical degree. He's carrying out scientific and medical tests uh, with, with, <laughs> with gay abandon here. Um, and, he's also, and also he's also quite Sherlock Holmes-like in terms of tying the, uh, the Cybermen disease to coffee. I'm being very, very circumspect in, des- in describing the plots of these stories because I, don't, I really, really like people to go away and maybe just have some time with the audios and experience um, season four on audio as far as possible in a new and fresh way. We are lucky with the Moonbase that episodes uh, two and four exist. Mm. And really that that does give you a really fantastic slice of that particular story. The Moonbase is lucky that we have two episodes existing that really show this story to its uh, best. And of course we have uh, who's soon to become veteran Doctor Who director Morris Barry recording one of his uh, Cyberman stories for this. So it, it's it's a really fantastic story, actually, even though most people will only ever experience half of it. Mm, definitely, definitely, definitely. But as I say, if you can, get a listen. It's a great, it's a great piece of story. But the next story is a totally different kettle of fish. Not not that it's good or bad, but I mean, I, I personally can't really say a lot about the Macroterra because it's four episodes long. None of them exist. Um, I think there's only one surviving shot of the actual Macra itself. Of course, there's the audio, but I probably haven't listened to it in 20 or 30 years. Tom, please, please <laughs> save me and tell me how wonderful the Macra Terror is. Well, it's an interesting story because there are many, many roots, or it's, it's the first appearance of, of several set pieces and ideas that we see in the new series. For instance, if we think back to New Earth, so David Tennant's first proper outing as the Doctor. Um, there's a lovely scene where he's in a decontamination chamber and he's being blasted from all sides by disinfectant and so on. Um, that, echo, or that, that is an echo of uh, episode one of this story, where the Doctor, Ben, Polly and Jamie, so there's another crowded TARDIS that uh, uh, was very much the case with Peter Davison's years, but the Doctor, Ben, Polly and Jamie arrive in what appears to be a holiday camp. Uh, as soon as they arrive, the Doctor's put into a grooming machine. So his unkempt hair and baggy coat are tidied up. And there's a lovely line where the Doctor says, why would anyone want to see their face in a pair of suede shoes? Um, <laughs> but he then throws himself directly into a muscle-toning machine, which makes him all messy again, which is, which is all quite, quite, quite lovely. So there's that. There's also the idea... Uh, of what appears on the surface to be a very happy colony uh, in, in a holiday camp, which reaches out to Delta and the Bannermen, but also to things like the Happiness Patrol. So again, we've got the, you know, the first expression of an idea that would be reworked later in the show's history as well. Um, what it comes down to, without wanting to give too much plot away, is that there is a, a sinister monster who, is using, who are using human beings to mine gas, which they need to actually survive. So in fairness, they're, they're, it's, a bit open, it's a bit up in the air, really. It's, it's hard to say whether or not the Macra, who are the monsters who showed up later in Gridlock, I believe it was? Mm, gridlock, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's hard to say whether the Macra are actually evil or they're just doing what they have to do in order to survive, because as I say, the humans are mining the gas that the Macra need. Um, but the story really is again is that is that wonderful expression of a fear that was quite prominent in people's minds in 1966 when we think about shows like uh, the prisoner um the idea that 
on the surface, everything was really nice and happy and there was no problem. There's some great incidental happy music here. But that happiness, that smile is just a little bit too fixed and it's just a little bit too utopian and there is something quite rotten in the state of Denmark there. So the idea of Cold War paranoia and people being uh, being used as puppets in the front to something quite sinister going on. It's a story that Doctor Who's told a couple of times, but I would argue it's not been told as well as it possibly was here for the first time. Um, also, you, it's the beginning of the of the understanding that there are maybe too many companions because uh, <laughs> number one, they, they, they are split up quite quickly, and Ben and some of the words in Ben's mouth are a little bit too complex for an able seaman, shall we say? But a good story nonetheless, um, a good monster story, a good run around, some interesting ideas. Um, and by this point in this story, uh, by the time the Doctor comes out of the muscle-toning machine as a bit of a bedraggled old tramp, uh, he really has got his look, his feel, his character absolutely down-packed. And it's fair to say that although we've had three or four stories where the, uh, the character of the Doctor emerges, here it's fully formed. You've raised some very interesting points there and stuff that I was going to talk about too, that... Um the the next story the faceless ones does see the uh, slimming down of the uh, TARDIS console room with uh, Ben and Polly leaving in that story but you also mentioned there about characters espousing on things that they shouldn't really be familiar with and that's <laughs> something I've actually more found um, with the Jamie character than anything and that's also been carried on in the the novels both from the Missing Adventure range in the nineties mm. now whether that's a case of They've understood that Jamie is saying things he shouldn't understand, so they've sort of knowingly continued it in the novels. Hmm. Or whether they're not understanding as well that here's a guy who's who's been plucked from the 18th century, basically. And, you know, for the next four stories, he's hundreds of years in his future, or, you know, probably even a thousand years in his future in the case of, uh, you know, stories like the Macra Terra. Um, but he, he seems quite, I suppose, at ease in these times and, and, and picks up these what must be to him fantastical things that are happening to him. I, I keep thinking that if Jamie McCrimmon had been a character in the modern series, we would have episodes devoted to the fact that he is like a, a, a total fish out of water compared from you know the 18th century to the 21st. I, you know, I think you're right. The, the only companion I've seen... Properly reference this, uh, this this whole idea of how dangerous time travel can be is Martha. Oddly enough, um, in, the, mm. in the Shakespeare Code, that in the, inside the first five minutes, she said, "Oh, I've got to be careful what I do in case I train, I, you know, in case I tread on a butterfly." Um, and, and and to be honest, that's the, only, the one of the only honest expressions of how dangerous time travel can be that I've seen in the show at all. But you're right, Jamie is from the 18th century. When did he learn to read? How is he taken to this so easily, so quickly? How is his attitude to women the way that it is? You, you know, which is a very important point because you know that's that's a, a, a brawny Scotsman. Women are for two. Mm. Women are for two things, and one of them is not running around alien planets saving the day. That's true. I mean, leaving aside the fact that Martha was concerned about treading on a butterfly when she walked out of the TARDIS wearing something in that particular era that would have made her almost naked. Mm. But let's let, let's let's just leave that aside for the moment. They they had a different attitude to companions, I suppose, back then, and and all through the classic era. As a general rule, companions weren't expanded they weren't really covered in depth I, I suppose until the late 70s early 80s mm. and but but certainly back in Jamie's time he, he was a companion there to go wow look at that doctor three bags full doctor isn't that amazing doctor yeah yeah you're right I mean Louise Jameson tells uh, who played Leela tells a great story about trying to work out on a board and a shoot one day how many ways there, there were saying look doctor 
doctor, look, look, doctor, doctor, <laughs> look, doctor, and so on. Interestingly as well, what you've got with Ben and Polly is you've got companions that absolutely belong to William Hartnell. He was not a, uh, he was not a fit man. He was, he had issues doing some of the more strenuous action scenes. And so suddenly you've got Ben, who can do all the running up and punching people on the nose, and Polly, who could, and Polly, who is the love interest, which you know, which, which we have always seen in in the show. But once we've got Patrick Troughton, it's it's immediately apparent that Ben's Ben's physicality isn't actually needed, and also there's space, there's more space for a character like Polly to be slightly bigger, slightly thicker. But but Troughton's performance was you know being so hugely different to William Hartnell's men that the companions had to be rethought and it's interesting to see that rather than saying immediately all right fine we'll get another we'll get another dolly girl in because let's be fair it's the doctor and his girl companion the first the first companion that actually resonates is Jamie because you know rather than Ben it is Jamie who's sees that he's got the doctor as like a bigger brother rather than an uncle or a father figure we're just about to get into talking about the faceless ones. And hmm. what one thing that really blows my mind, I suppose, is um, that it has a wonderful, subtle use of time travel, that Ben and Polly are returned back to Earth on the day they left, yeah. basically. Yep, yep. So nice and convenient, that. The, <laughs> their initial story is set on the same day that the faceless ones is. And also, by a curious factor, certain parts of Evil of the Daleks are set on that day as well. Ben and Polly leave. Unfortunately, The Faceless Ones, again, is one of those stories that, that, that really suffers by having very little footage available. I mean, we only have episodes, I believe, one and three are still available to actually view. And, and again, check out the Lost in Time box set, which is a fantastic collection of these orphaned episodes of uh, William Hartnell and the Patrick Troughton era. It's something that you talked about before, too, that there was a lot of revolving doors behind the scenes in Doctor Who at this time. Producers, directors, script editors were all coming on for what seemed like five minutes and then leaving again. And that certainly was re- reflected in the stories because th- th- there are certain jumping off points within the Troughton era where you see companions like the ones in the Highlanders and certainly in the faceless ones, you go, well, this person was obviously being groomed a- as a companion to continue on with the Doctor, but it just never happened. And that that just seems reflective in, I suppose, the behind-the-scenes turmoil that... Uh, Doctor Who was experiencing, and and we'll certainly see a lot of that during season five. Uh, Just a couple of things to say about um, the faceless ones. Um, Most famously that uh, Pauline Collins, who played uh, played the character of Sam Briggs, uh, also known as the companion who never was. Um, Viewers of Doctor Who may recognise the name Pauline Collins from the the huge number of very successful productions she's been involved in, but also because she played... Queen Victoria in Tooth and Claw, very very well known character actress, um, and I think that she, that she chose not to join Doctor Who was good for her, but a, a real tragedy for us, <laughs> frankly, because she was she's a yes. she remains a brilliant actress. Um, part one, part two. Well, actually, no, three things maybe. So the second thing to note is that once again we've got the the resurgence of this, of this theme of loss of identity. Um, it's you know, and it's there, right there in the, in the title, the faceless ones. The whole story being about um, aliens stealing people and stealing people's identities to give themselves form, um, which which again was an idea that we see through the prisoner, an idea that we see through. Uh, the the Cybermen, faceless monsters who have no real identity of themselves but are just an oppressive force. Um, as I say, it, it, these are the Cold War years, so people's fear were the, the great fear that people had at that time. Quite quite apart from the fact that 1966 was a pretty good, colourful year for Britain, was that 
the world was going to be taken over by a communist state. There's an awful lot of drama, and there's an awful lot written about Cold War drama, things like The Prisoner, The Fugitive, The Invaders, and so on and so forth. And that paranoia, that media paranoia, that underlying throb of worry is uh, quite, quite happily... Uh, illustrated through the stories of this season. As I say, we've got um, the moon base, the macro terror again, and once again, the faceless ones showing that people are a bit worried about their loss of identity. Wonderful use of location footage too in, in, in these stories, and, and, and we do see glimmers of that in the two surviving episodes. Um, use of Gatwick Airport to fantastic effect, and, and it was probably quite a revelation for the time for the people watching it because, uh, you know, they probably wouldn't have seen a lot of, I suppose, what you call behind-the-scenes stuff mm. at airports, and, and having it used in Doctor Who would have been quite fantastic at the time. Exactly. Making the everyday that look a bit more sinister because th- at that point, Gatwick Airport, or even an airport, was a new thing to a lot of people. Um, the idea of, of holidays where you could leave the country. I mean, abroad, for a, lot, for a whole generation of people, was somewhere where you went when you were fighting in a war, but now it was becoming something that was exotic, something that was unusual and strange. And even for some people now, leaving their own country is a, a huge, great adventure. But imagine what it was like back you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. It's a, it's a real thing. And then suddenly you've got Doctor Who, who's an alien who travels in time and space at Gatwick Airport. It's not too difficult to, to push the two things together, but it makes it just a little bit more frightening because you have the birth of the new. Yeah, lovely, great story. The end of season four gives us, I think, one of those stories that before Tomb of the Cybermen was discovered uh, in in the early 90s, 1992, I believe, in some dusty Hong Kong cupboard, Mm. um, certainly after that was discovered, Evil of the Daleks supplanted that story's place in the the minds of the fans of, of stories they really wanted to see, stories that they would, I suppose, give their left arm for. Evil of the Daleks only has one episode existing out of seven, and it, it's quite a cracking episode in its own right. But uh, it, it just leaves fans of the show wanting more of this story and, and wishing that it existed. Yeah, absolutely. Um it's, it's, a, it's a very significant story as well because it's the last appearance of the Daleks in black and white. Um, and I think watching through the story, again, without wanting to give too much away, you can see that perhaps the intention was to kill them off forever because it's quite a cataclysmic story uh, in, terms, in, ter- in terms of what goes on. It's, the, it's definitely the end. It definitely marks the end of the era. Um, ben and Polly have gone. It's just the Doctor and Jamie and their binary, their, uh, their relationship is absolutely there from the get-go you know they, they it's a du- it's a double act and it's a great thing to behold uh, there are some some great performances and of course one of the most important things to notice is that this story sees the introduction of uh, a bold brassy intelligent fant- uh, and well-played female character unfortunately Bridget Forsyth is written out in episode five and we get Victoria Waterfield um, <laughs> but that but that said I've got, I've got Victoria Waterfield it's interesting she's Deborah Watling plays her as she would be. You know, we've just been talking about how uncommonly easy Jamie seems to find it with uh, find the idea of time travel and aliens. And Victoria Waterfield has a real problem with it a lot of the time, <laughs> uh, which I think is probably a little bit more accurate and certainly a little bit more honest in terms of what her character was doing. Well, true, but that 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 certainly changes with the advent of season five, where she again like um, Martha Jones does in Shakespeare Code, dresses in something during Tomb of the Cybermen that would be almost uh, being naked if she was re- really true to her uh, historical roots. But anyway... Mm. 
it's interesting. We often talk about touchstones to the modern era of Doctor Who, and many comparisons have been made between uh, the earlier Dalek story, Power of the Daleks, and Victory of the Daleks from the the most current Matt Smith season. Again, we've got stuff in Evil of the Daleks, and we we have the human factor and the Dalek factor, which I really think is another touchstone towards the uh, uh, Dalek story from from the Eccleston era of Doctor Who called Dalek, yep. where Rose, I suppose, infuses into this dormant Dalek her human factor mm. and allows it to live again. So it, it's really fascinating to me that that's one of the real thrills I get out of the modern series, that you see these fantastic homages to classic Doctor Who and, and certainly Evil of the Daleks is, is a wonderful mm. homage to uh, stories like Dalek from the Eccleston era. No, you're right, because it, it seems to be that the Daleks recognise that a human physiognomy changes once they travel through time. And there's something about the quality of that that they require. Well, as the story progresses, it seems they're looking for the human factor, but it also but it becomes more accurate what, what they're trying to do is distill the Dalek factor. Again, don't want to ruin the story for those for, for those who have yet to experience it, but it's quite, it's it's a great it's a great runaround. Also, the the theme of preservation of your individuality, which the Doctor says way back in the Macro Terror, actually. Uh, to Polly, um, i.e. the idea of um, never do what you're told, you must always make up your own mind, is a bit more obviously shown here, or a little more obviously exposed with the Doctor. Um, how can I put it? Repro- I won't say reprogramming Daleks, but just making them ask questions. And um, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lovely scene where a Dalek is given an order, and the response is, Why? <laughs> and there's this bubbling fury from Love Dalek. What do you mean, why? Just do it. As we, because this is the story that closes season four. So season four is opened with the power. Well, it's not opened, but uh, the, the first major story after the 10th planet is the power of the Daleks. So we've seen, so we, we have the, the new Doctor meeting the Daleks for the first time. And then ostensibly at the end of this, we have the, doctor, the new Doctor meeting the Daleks for the last time as well. Also inside that, we've got um, the appearance of the Emperor Dalek, who we wouldn't really see again until the end of the 2005 season with Christopher Eccleston. Although it was an insane megalomaniac Dalek, but then they're all insane megalomaniacs, I suppose. Um, So yeah, it's a tremendously important story because it's the end of Troughton's first season. Um, Also, I I think I've already mentioned that... uh, the idea of the cosmic clown, the idea of this fellow who is going to try and make you think for yourself, which was in marked contrast to the first Doctor, William Hartnell, who seemed to be, I won't say bumbling along, but really just seemed to be trying to make his way through whilst writing it little wrongs. This Doctor was a, more, a lot more of a crusader, and by the time we get to the end of Evil of the Daleks, he's really, really put his mark, uh, made his mark on this show. It's an interesting bookend of the series with the Daleks at beginning and end, because... I think even at this point, the production team were looking for a way to get rid of the Daleks. And like you say, the evil of the Daleks was supposed to be the end of the Daleks because the the copyright holder to the Daleks, Terry Nation, I suppose is well known as being quite draconian about his uh, little creations, Mm. one will say in inverted commas. And the production team were looking to use the Cybermen to replace the Daleks as as the main TV series villain because the rights to the Cybermen were just a little bit easier to negotiate than uh, mm. Terry Nation's Daleks, it must be said. Yeah, so so we come to the end of Series 4. The, the, the Daleks are dead. The Cybermen are on the rise and uh, we're about to enter Season 5 oh, yes. in 1967-68. Uh, that is a story for another episode and that will be later this week yes. on the Rock 2 Podcast where we will cover... 
season five of the uh, Patrick Trout Mirror. So please join us in uh, a couple of days and uh, find out what we have to say about season five. All right. See you later. See you soon, guys. Bye. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. Thank you.